1: One size fits
0: all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This Mother's Day,
0: celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Welcome to back from the borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know it. And now you do. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you will emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be, because anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Hello, lovely listener. If you're new here, welcome. If you are returning, hello, hi, welcome back. This is a multi-episode series Exploring Trauma Worlds. If you haven't yet listened to episodes one and two, I highly recommend going back and starting with Trauma Worlds episode one so that you can get the full context of the conversation. But if you're still listening now, it likely means that you've already listened to episodes one and two. So, as a quick recap, we're currently diving into Trauma Worlds and the Wisdom of Marion Woodman by Daniela FCF. And this is a beautiful plenary lecture adapted into a PDF that I found online. And this was initially a collaboration in 2015 between Pacifica Graduate Institute and the Marion Woodman Foundation. And in the first And second episodes, we really covered what Daniela SCF defines as a trauma world. And a trauma world is essentially the veil through which we see the world when we are dealing with unresolved or unconscious trauma within our minds and our bodies. And how this altered perception and heightened nervous system state really impacts our ability to move through the world, find meaning in our lives, connect with other people, connect with ourselves, and even feel healthy physically. So in the first couple of episodes, we obviously defined the trauma world. We talked about triggers. We talked about the negative mother and the death mother archetypes. And we even dived into the different dynamics of trauma world. And as a reminder, Daniela believes that these three core dynamics that form the hub of trauma world, this filter that we are now working on removing are fear, disconnection, and shame In episodes one and two, we dived pretty deep into fear and disconnection. And I told you here on this third episode, we would touch on what she's shared about shame. And as I mentioned on both the initial episodes, long-term listeners of the podcast will know that I released an eight-part podcast series all on toxic shame. So what we're going to cover now is what Daniela FCF shares about toxic shame especially through the lens of marion woodman's work and for those of you who've already listened to my toxic shame series we drew upon the wisdom of john bradshaw and so it will be interesting to see what additional insights we can gather from these two women and after we dive into what they have to say about shame the bulk of our episode is going to be talking about what they share about healing from trauma because we've covered pretty well and good the last two episodes about how bad trauma fucks us up. And it can get really hard listening to stuff like this because you start to wonder like, okay, yeah, I realize how screwed up I am. I realize how I'm stuck in paranoid Gollum energy all the time. It's impacting my life, my connections with other people, with myself. Yeah, I get it. But what am I supposed to do Because many of us who feel stuck in trauma worlds have found ourselves trying to find healing strictly through the mind, maybe different therapeutic modalities that just try to change your way of thinking about things or reading books and listening to podcast episodes, but you haven't dived into trauma-informed care, somatics, and the mind-body and connection. And so sometimes learning about this stuff can be the major breakthrough that you need because I promise you, speaking from experience as someone who really was in your shoes, and if I'm being honest, I still am to a certain degree. I'm by no means finished with this recovery journey, nor will I ever be. But I think even after just about three years of solid work and even making this my job now, (laughs) I still have a long way to go. So if you're just early in your recovery, please offer yourself grace and compassion and patience and realize that you're rewiring your entire nervous system. You're taking a look at some of the hardest stuff, dismantling generations of trauma and toxic shame. And sometimes people never do this. So the very fact that you're aware that you want change and you're ready to look at what you can do to change it and you want recovery Well, that's massive. And you should really be proud of yourself for getting this far. So with that intro out of the way, let's dive in and hear what these two women have to say about shame. Daniela writes, shame is the third system at the core of a trauma world. Shame is a visceral and pervasive feeling of being fundamentally flawed and inadequate as a human being. Shame is primarily relational, although it leaves us feeling absolutely alone. And origins of shame lie in an implicit conviction that we're somehow unworthy of enjoying meaningful relationships. Shame is often confused with guilt, but with guilt, we feel bad about things we've done. With shame, we feel bad about who we are. Now, many of you are long-term listeners and you've already listened to my shame series. And there are a few listeners who've reached out to me over the years and I get lots of emails and every single email I receive touches me deeply, but some of them hit me in a way that's hard to describe. And I received a response from a listener who I've been going back and forth with a bit because her initial outreach really touched me because when I received her initial email, all I could think of was, this is someone who is soaking in toxic shame. And I'm not claiming this. She's she's openly talking about this and admits this in her email. But the way she articulates this, I'm not going to give away her name. I'm just going to anonymously share a small snippet that she wrote to me. Because the way she shared this, it made me feel seen and I'm sure that it's going to help a lot of other listeners out there too. This broke my heart and I shed tears for this person because so many people are walking around feeling this way. And to this listener, you know exactly who you are. I'm reaching out with the biggest virtual big sister hug that I can possibly muster and just saying, thank you for the beauty of your sharing, and you are not alone, and you are not broken. This was a response to my email back to her, and she said, in all seriousness, though I felt very guilty after I saw your reply, I couldn't stop crying. I assumed you wouldn't reply to me, not in a victim way, but just, well, I know I wasn't expecting it, and as soon as I saw you replied, I just broke down and could not stop saying sorry and saying, why did you reply to me? I felt like I'd tricked you and manipulated you into thinking I was a good person, and I must have curated my email in such a way that hid the monster within me and what a truly bad, defective human I am. I couldn't even read your reply till days later. To see you open up back to me filled me with a feeling that I had betrayed you, almost like the dark black toxic sludge of me would taint you and it broke my heart. I don't want to hurt but I inevitably feel like my very presence is hurting others. Dramatic I know but I suppose for the first time I'm truly recognizing the deep underlying beliefs and honestly it's actually pretty cool to recognize that I've just internalized everything toxic from my father. I feel like a bad person, a dangerous person not to be trusted, almost like my very existence was a violation on the world and other people, to realize this is the reason I have tried to hide so much from the world, not even feeling comfortable petting my pets, like I'm burdening them and my badness is slowly poisoning them and they don't even realize it. I still feel this way, but now I can logically see none of those beliefs were ever truly mine, It feels kind of like having a car that isn't running well and never being able to get the bonnet open. But I finally pried it open, and I can see it much more clearly now. I mean, we've got some work to do, but at least I can see what's going on. And her email goes on a bit more, but she makes some personal shares, and I don't want to share too much of our correspondence. But this snippet from this anonymous listener profoundly demonstrates toxic shame and how it can make us genuinely feel so bad, like something is dirty about us, like there is something wrong with us, even to the point of feeling like we're somehow a burden or a toxic poison to our pets, our animals that we care for. And Many people are walking around feeling exactly like this and toxic shame is on a spectrum. It'll display in different ways. This listener endured clearly some incredibly, incredibly damaging emotional and verbal abuse from her father. Some people grew up in homes where there was emotional neglect, maybe not overt abuse. And yet many of us will develop Patterns of critical inner thinking similar to the type of thing that we just heard from this listener. But the deeper and darker the abuse is, you can see how deeply that this can manifest. And when we're walking around really believing that we are dark, dangerous, shameful, toxic, and broken, that is the definition of a trauma world. Daniela SCF goes on to write this shame is mediated by the emotional networks of the brain. So although shame is typically accompanied by self-critical thoughts, such as I'm stupid, useless, fat, and so on, it's ultimately lived as an embodied experience that resides deep beneath consciousness and sucks us into the psychological equivalent of a black hole. What she's trying to describe here is that it's not just thinking, oh, I'm stupid, I suck, I'm bad. That doesn't even begin to scrape the surface of toxic shame. It's just like you can say the word orange, but until you bite into an orange and really taste the flavor and hold it in your hand, it's a completely different experience. And that's the same with toxic shame or any kind of traumatic experience or things that we've been going through in this series or any emotions that we talk about on my podcast. It's one thing to just say the word and understand it intellectually, but these things live in our bodies. And that's what Daniela FCF is referring to when she talks about these self-critical thoughts are being lived as an embodied experience that resides deep beneath our consciousness. She goes on to say, shame is a product of evolution and it's experienced as a passing emotion in almost everybody. It evolved to tell us that we're at risk of losing important social relationships or that we might be thrown out of the group. So this goes back to us really recognizing the evolutionary and adaptive elements of of all of these different states of being because as we mentioned fear hypervigilance and these dissociative states and as well as toxic shame all of these things we've discussed so far these things can be adaptive shame isn't always bad hypervigilance isn't always bad fear not always bad either these states can and have saved our lives we need them we can't eliminate them we don't want to hate them we want to turn the light of awareness on them thank them for what they've done to us but take the seat of our higher awareness but we have to become conscious of these patterns first so let's keep reading if we've been traumatized shame becomes indelibly interwoven with our implicit sense of ourselves. Whereupon our identity becomes shame-based. There are several routes to becoming shame-based. First, shame can originate outside of us. When we are explicitly or implicitly made to feel inadequate by our family, caregivers, peers, teachers, culture, or socio-political environment, we absorb that judgment. In this case, Being shamed constitutes the original painful and frightening experience around which a trauma world is formed. Second, human infants need a sensitive and responsive nurturing. When this basic need is unmet, children develop an embodied and nonverbal sense of being unworthy of love and inadequate. They also develop an embodied and nonverbal sense of inadequacy around the need for nurturing, implicitly feeling that having that need makes them inadequate. Third, shame can originate inside of us as an internal response to traumatizing experiences. Painful and frightening experiences occur that have nothing to do with being shamed. However, we have evolved a desire to understand why these things have happened to us. And for various reasons, we tend to believe that it's our fault. For example, children whose parents divorce commonly feel that if they had been better kids, their parents would still be together. Fourth, once we have entered a trauma world, shame is created in response to our own behavior. There are times we know when we're overreacting. But because we're unaware that our fear system has been sensitized, we then perceive these trauma reactions as evidence of our supposed inadequacy. Similarly, if a complex takes over or we move into an addiction, we often feel inadequate. In addition, exiling parts of ourselves leaves us with an implicit sense of inauthenticity, which also creates shame. So let's discuss what we've learned in these last four paragraphs of all these different routes that we can take to becoming shame-based because there are some really important points that she's made. She really talks about how shame originates both inside of us and outside of us. And so it's giving me this image of it coming from all sides. And when we're young, especially our parents, their parents, their parents' parents, generations of people who were receiving shame-based messages from outside, in the family, their peers, teachers, culture, politics, and this then manifests inside of us. That age-old hermetic wisdom comes to mind, as above, so below, as within, so without, And so when we're receiving shame from the inside and the outside, then we are going to respond to the world in a way where we expect that everything is our fault, even when it's not. And sometimes this can make people feel like we're almost seeking attention or seeking validation or making everything about us. And here's the tough love, big sister, tough love. They're kind of right. And that's the thing about when we become really shame-based, it's easy for us to fall into learned helplessness and a serious victim complex. And I'm not about to fall into the boomer, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality, but I am saying there does come a time in our recovery journeys where we have to realize that no one's coming to save us and it's up to us to take charge of this process of self-realization and self-knowledge and that's really scary you can look at it that way or you can just force yourself to look at it as though it's empowering because it's going to be scary in the beginning it's going to feel overwhelming but it's a baby step lifetime process and all you have to do is take one step every single day but you have to start somewhere And you will notice when you're really shame-based and then you struggle maintaining relationships and you find that people want to take breaks or get distance from you, maybe even the people that are closest to you, it may be because toxic shame almost feels like it's seeping into others. Our energy, when we are soaking in toxic shame and talking about it and oversharing and trauma dumping on people, that is overwhelming on others and everybody is just trying to get by right now lots of people are struggling at this point and so while it's absolutely amazing to be able to have mutually supportive relationships when we are stuck in toxic shame and not taking charge of our own recovery process that's when we get labeled like emotional vampire or something like this yeah because That's how it feels to people. And this was me for a really, really long time. I know that I had people who probably wanted to take some distance from me and got just really emotionally drained, even though they loved me very much. They were tired of this repeated soundtrack of the same self-defeating things of me speaking through my trauma world veil and them not seeing the same threats that I was seeing. And that doesn't mean that anything that I was feeling wasn't real inside, but it was no longer a reality that I was in a traumatizing environment and I wasn't also taking any steps to help myself. I was choosing to stay stuck and all I did was complain and tell people about how hopeless I was and that I didn't think that there was any future for me being recovered. And that is just not true. But we can't make people believe something until they're ready. I had to come to my own realizations in my own time. I hope that me sharing this will help you, especially if you feel like you've had people Distance themselves from you, or if you're someone who's had to take some distance from someone who's just wallowing in their own shame world, I think you should give yourself grace because you have to protect yourself. And speaking as someone who was that trauma dumping emotional vampire who some people had to take some space from, I was incredibly angry and sad and heartbroken and reactive when this initially happened. But now, from a 10,000 foot view years later, when some of these people have reentered my life, especially as they've seen me embark upon a recovery journey. And I know now from this perspective, they were just doing what they needed to do. And they were just trying to protect themselves and they had their own traumas and their own stuff to deal with. And I wasn't bringing anything to those relationships. I was just bringing my offloaded trauma and my need for validation. And while that's great, people expect a reciprocal relationship. And when I was just falling to pieces all the time and needing validation and reassurance and wanting people to listen to my problems, I wasn't in a space to be a reciprocal friend. I loved them. They knew that. But at the end of the day, People have to take care of themselves and we have to understand that. So to both people on the side of that, offer yourself grace. If you are having people take some space from you, the best thing you can do is to respect their decision, not emotionally react and start taking your recovery into your own hands and knowing that these relationships can come back into your life in the future. And also maybe some of them won't. I truly believe that the axiom people are in your life for a season, a reason, or a lifetime is accurate. I think that if we really abide by that wisdom, it can ease a lot of our suffering. Let things be surrender to what is and take control of what you can control. And that's your reactions, your behavior, your unconscious shadow material. Daniela writes, irrespective of how shame originates, once we're functioning from a shame-based inner core, we can't recognize shame for what it is. Then we see ourselves through a distorted lens, experience ourselves as contemptible, and feel a victim to our own believed inadequacy. In this state, we're sucked into a downward spiral of shame. We become increasingly desperate to obliterate the parts of ourselves that we believe make us inadequate often redoubling our efforts to shame those parts into submission however when we shame ourselves we wound ourselves and in response to such wounding our trauma worlds are refortified what she's really trying to get us to identify here is the real rot Of shame actually comes from us not being conscious of it because when we aren't aware that toxic shame is driving our behaviors and our critical inner voice and we just identify with those things and by identify meaning like this is me my inner voice is me these beliefs these thoughts these stories this is who i am that's why so much of mysticism and spirituality that you'll hear is not identifying with those things, identifying with no self, and kind of letting the grip of the ego loosen in moments of meditation so that you can actually witness that you are the witness. You're not the thoughts. You're not the shame. But when we're not conscious of it, as Daniela so beautifully points out here, then We just see ourselves through the distorted lens and we experience ourselves as pieces of dysfunctional shit with no hope. And then we feel like a victim to this belief. So this is the state that causes what is referred to as like shame spirals because it just gets harder and harder. We become increasingly more desperate to get rid of these bad parts of ourselves, but That's just self-wounding. It's just making it worse, saying, I'm going to fix this. I'll get better. I'm going to beat these bad parts of me out of submission when these bad parts of you were never you to begin with. And your very belief in their inherent existence as a part of your innate identity is part of why you're so stuck. She goes on to write at the same time, we try to cajole ourselves into success, believing that if we can force ourselves to become more than we are or ideally perfect, then the gnawing pain of being shame-based will abate. However, if we're shame-based, no amount of success or perfection will ever be enough. No matter what we do, we're never enough. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. I know I can. It's kind of what i just said right if only i can be prettier if only i can be smarter if only i can mask myself so that people will believe that i'm part of the crowd and don't hate myself and that i'm inherently bad it doesn't work so she goes on to write being shame-based poisons not only our relationships with ourselves but also our relationships with others terrified that if others get to know us They'll see us as the inadequate person we believe ourselves to be. We put up barriers, push people away, and sabotage relationships. She's speaking to what I've talked about here, is how many of us who are shame-based conduct ourselves in relationships is putting on a performance of the person we think they will like, will find sexy, will find attractive, will be marriage material, or insert whatever expectation you think they have we put so much energy in being this perfect version of ourselves not setting boundaries not speaking our truth and then eventually that shit you'll run out of steam but we do this because we feel like we have to convince them we have to get them to see that we're not this bad person rather than just having the confidence to approach a relationship With the knowledge that you're entering into a potential partnership with two people that are human beings that are flawed, not perfect, and understanding that it's going to take a dance around each different personality, different coping mechanisms, and traumas, and just expecting for things to not be perfectly smooth, taking the chance at speaking your truth if something makes you feel uncomfortable. And if they bounce, well, then they bounce. But the problem is so many of us who are toxically shamed and live with that feeling and belief in our bones, that's why so many of us end up in relationships where it's like three fucking years later and you're going, why in the hell am I still here? Why did, why did I even get into this relationship? I told the story on a previous episode, so I won't go into it in detail, but I was with someone and we were already living together after a very quick moving the process right along. But to be fair, we were living in a big city with really expensive rent. I think a lot of people, for financial reasons, have to push the fast-forward button on the move-in process, which is really shitty. I understand, though. I really did. Zaz and I kind of had to do something similar. I was already living with this person. First and foremost, he had a child who was, by the way, an absolute sweetheart. I loved her, but I didn't have the understanding of how intense of a responsibility as a 25-year-old person to be dating someone who had like a five, six-year-old daughter and a really bad relationship with the mother of that daughter. And then also one day we're watching a show and there was like some lesbian hookup scene in the show and it came out that he really wanted to turn off the TV just in case his daughter would come in and see it on. And I thought, what the... Obviously, you don't want your child watching sexual shows. She's way too young to be doing that. But I was like, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, if kids see scenes like that, that could turn them gay. And I literally was like, what? Wait, a record scratch? What? And I just remember like... My stomach fell out of my asshole in that moment because I went, Molly, are you seriously, you are living with a man who thinks that his daughter watching two lesbians kissing on TV would turn her gay. Like, (laughs) and there were already things that made us really incompatible. And he had issues, I had issues. That relationship ended in flames. We way fast forwarded things. It was after my first marriage dissolved and I was just trying to find myself in all the wrong places but that just goes to show how when we're toxically shamed i knew when i first met him and he said he had a kid i was kind of like whoa i don't know if i'm ready for that but i ignored it i saw that he was making money in pretty nefarious fraudulent ways but he bought me really nice things and we had a great time and so i ignored it I saw that he had a lot of anger. And one day when we were out, he was really rude to a perfectly trying to do their best cashier at a store. And that's like one of my biggest things. But again, we already were living together and I felt so trapped. And he really turned on all the charm and magic in the beginning. And it was only after we sped past things that I started to see the cracks but I felt so broken and so soaking in toxic shame that I felt like I didn't deserve anything else. And I'm not saying this, but I was better than this person or anything like that, but it wasn't compatible. But I thought I just needed to settle for that because I wouldn't be able to find something more compatible. Not better, just more compatible for me. And that's what toxic shame does. It makes us feel like we can't advocate for ourselves. It makes us feel like we don't have any choice about who we're with. And this kind of state of being also really is attractive to very predatory people. And I experienced a lot of that in my life too because people that are very predatory, who by the way, are often soaking in toxic shame and horrific childhood trauma themselves, but they're just projecting it out into the world in a different way. It's like they can sniff out people who feel like they're a piece of shit and they don't deserve anything. And they will sniff that out. And it's almost like the two types are drawn like moths to a flame. So this is why it's so important to start getting a handle on this stuff. Because if you resonate with this, please hear me. There are other options out there. I know what it feels like to be feeling like you're trapped I was in a fucking different country. I was living in the United Kingdom. My relationship fell apart. I didn't have any money. I was in a foreign country with a visa that was about to expire and a pending sexual harassment lawsuit at work. And this was a fucking nightmare. And I felt like I have to stay in this relationship because I'm trapped. And it took until this relationship ended in physical violence against me That I finally said, no, no more. Don't let it get that far. Please take it from me. You can make it. And guess what? I did. I got out of there. I moved back to the States with my fucking tail between my legs. I was so excited to get out of the United States, go live in London, was living my dream life, working at Louis Vuitton. Like I was so proud of what I had done, but I chose me and I moved back Did I fall into multiple really unhealthy dynamics when I moved back? Yes, because I'm the kind of person that needs to learn lessons the hard way, apparently. But I'm just saying, don't let this trauma world created by toxic shame convince you that you don't deserve compatibility. Don't let it make you ignore red flags that could potentially save your life. And conversely, she talks about how shame can make us sabotage good things. And isn't that the way? When we're soaking in shame and looking at life through the trauma world, it's almost like we're more likely to stay with people that are incompatible or abusive. And when something potentially good comes along, we instinctively push it away. This is the major key right here. Because when you believe you're bad... Your body senses something as being good for you and you think I don't deserve it. But what you might say is, oh, he's too nice. There's just no passion there. He's kind of a nerd. I need a bad boy. I need to feel that push and pull and will he, won't he, passionate breakup sucks kind of vibes. No, you don't need a trauma-bonded relationship. You want a companion for life. And your Trauma responses are training you to see things that are safe as boring and uncomfortable. And we need to do our recovery work because I want each and every one of you to be able to find a safe, securely attached partner. And it's possible. And if you choose to be single, that's cool too, but you're going to have friendships as well. And this, all this stuff, the same goes for friendships. If you think I had healthy people that were my friends, sure, I had those too. But I also found myself as a magnet for really manipulative, toxic friendships too. And so, regardless of whether you say that you don't want a partner and you're just going to do you, you will have to have relationships. You can't just be an island. You have to move and interact with the world. You need connections and friendships, and that means dismantling toxic shame. So she goes on to write, alternatively, and returning to an earlier theme, we may intensify our efforts to control others, hoping to prevent them from doing anything that could inadvertently expose our shame. We're generally unconscious of what we're doing. However, because we're left with a murky feeling that our relationships lack trust and intimacy, we feel increasingly isolated. And as we've seen, feeling isolated propels us into a state of heightened fear. Also, because humans are a profoundly social species, when we lack meaningful relationships, we feel subhuman, which in turn exacerbates shame. In short, shame creates more shame. Shame also generates isolation and fear and reinforces the need to disconnect. So ultimately, shame is what keeps us locked in the trauma worlds. So you see here how she talks about these three different factors that create the trauma world, the isolation and fear, the hypervigilance, and then the disconnection. It ultimately just breeds shame and self-hatred she writes woodman did not explicitly talk about shame before donald kalshed's work and i'm actually unfamiliar with donald kalshed but he is a jungian analyst i looked that up so she writes before donald kalshed's paradigm changing work only a few jungian analysts wrote about shame all the same much of woodman's writing speaks to shame In particular, her second book and my favorite book ever, Addiction to Perfection, it powerfully addresses the insatiable drive for perfection that's a hallmark of being shame-based. Additionally, aspects of Woodman's portrayal of the death mother encapsulate the toxic impact of shame. The comment that I have here about this is exactly why I share so much wisdom that I learned from Jungian analysts and the work of Carl Jung and depth psychology in general is because there's so much gold in what they share and they touch on trauma and shame. But the thing is, they were talking about this before it was really a thing and they're not necessarily naming those things, but they speak from this mythopoetic perspective, this deep existential and spiritual way that really has such power to penetrate. And the thing is though, is that we don't hear about the work of Jungian analysts in everyday Instagram carousel therapy style stuff. Why? Well, because if you're going to therapy, especially if it's covered by insurance, most of the time it's going to be this brain-based stuff that wants to change your thought patterns pat you on the butt and send you out on your way. And the problem that insurance companies have with things like depth psychology is that it actually takes time. And the analysts that perform this work are not able to measure the success rate because it's not so A, B, C, one, two, three. And as I mentioned, most people are priced out of being able to see a Jungian analyst, myself included. But the beauty of it is, is that there is so much out there when it comes to books and if you go to my link tree which is just by my website if you click in there you'll see that i have an entire book recommendation list and i have an entire section dedicated to books that are depth psychology based you can peruse them i erred on the side of just sharing a ton of different books so that people could click through and find what speaks to them it can be overwhelming but don't let it be just Peruse through intuitively and see what stands out to you. But if you love what I've shared so far, Addiction to Perfection by Marion Woodman is one I recommend. Another book called Daughters of Saturn is really good. And I think there's another one called The Wounded Woman that I really like as well that's on there. But just peruse the list and see what stands out to you. I feel like this is also a good moment to plug my sponsor Young Platform because they also have tons of courses on there that are taught by incredible Jungian analysts, including previous guest, James Hollis, and also my instructor for my tarot certification course that I'm currently taking right now through Young Platform, Dr. Ken James. Amazing courses there for Relatively affordable prices. Most of their courses, I mean, if you go to one session with the Jungian analyst, you might pay like two hundred and fifty dollars. And most of their courses are like within the range of sixty to hundred and eighty dollars. They're really, really approachable and you can have access to them forever. There's a code of mine, it's molly10, but you need to go through my website and click 10% off Young platform and because you'll need to access it through that special link and then you can enter the code and you can get a little discount off your first course. But there's also tons of free stuff. My favorite podcast ever is this Jungian Life. Check that out. They have hundreds of free episodes And also the podcast that I was on a few weeks ago, Third Eye Drops, my friend Michael, who's the host of that podcast, has incredible videos about Carl Jung and his work on his YouTube channel. And he puts so much work into that. And I was also a guest on it a couple of weeks ago, which was super fun. And we're going to be having Michael for an episode on synchronicity here on the podcast as well. Now, before we dive into the healing portion of the episode, we're going to take a quick break for a few dynamically placed ads. Using ads allows me to continue making my episodes available for free to listeners who are unable to sign up for my premium subscription. However, if you would like ad free episodes of back from the borderline which if i were a listener i would prefer those we're talking about deep and emotional subjects and if i were a listener of my own podcast i would like to have an uninterrupted calming experience because i have no choice in the ads that they select to throw in on my podcast and that's just standard it's similar to youtube they just pop up throughout the youtube video they're just going to pop up here and they can be loud and disruptive and really take away from the experience sometimes, but it's just part of the part of the process. So please bear with me and enjoy or don't enjoy these ads. And if you would like to sign up for an ad-free experience, you can sign up for a membership on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash back from the borderline. Premium submarines, receive ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, as well as access to our private Discord community where you can connect with and chat with other listeners of the podcast. It can be really lonely on a healing journey, and we have a beautiful and nurturing community over there. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can go over and check out patreon.com slash back from the borderline. But in the meantime, let's take a quick ad break, and then we'll get right back into the exploration of healing our trauma worlds. So by this point, you're probably like, Molly, it's been 40 something minutes into this episode and you said we were going to talk about overcoming all of this shit. (laughs) Yes. We've now come to the section about healing trauma. So let's see what Daniela writes. Healing trauma is difficult. Although trauma worlds are created in response to external events, once established, they form closed and rigid internal systems. Locked inside these systems, our own behavior then sets us up to be re-traumatized by other people. Additionally, our behavior toward ourselves is re-traumatizing. Trauma worlds are self-perpetuating. Locked inside these systems, we also struggle to see trauma for what it is. That leaves us little choice but to focus on the visible symptoms of the chronic, deadening pain that they create. In addition to the fear disconnection and shame that lie at the heart of a trauma world there may also be depression rage addictions self-harm impoverished relationships and unexplained physical ailments focusing on such symptoms we as individuals and as a society put resources into trying to alleviate them perhaps through short-term therapy or psychopharmaceutical drugs or or by pinning our hopes on something like success at work, a new romantic relationship, weight loss, or cosmetic surgery. Any one of these may offer a temporary respite, but at the deeper internal systems, if they are not changed, we invariably fall back into suffering. Before we continue, I have to address this part. Because this is this is the actual tea right here. Is we are locked inside the trauma world and when we continue to focus on our symptoms, when we overly identify with different labels, man, the amount of time that I thought, if only I can find out what my diagnosis is, what's wrong with me, if only I can get a diagnosis and know what it is, then I'll feel better. If only I can change my body or my identity my persona a little bit then i'll feel better if only i would find a partner then i'll feel better if only i would just move out of this fucking town i just need to move and i'll just put all my effort into looking up pictures and jobs at another place then i'll feel better if only i just quit this job and do something else then i'll feel better If only I get to making X amount of money, you know, I don't need to continue on. But this doesn't fix anything. You're always going to keep coming up short if you're chasing these different fixes, if you're looking for yourself outside of yourself. Because no matter where you go, there you are. She goes on to write, Even when we see the traumatizing experiences beneath the symptoms, we're unlikely to recognize the trauma worlds in which we're living. So the first port of call is to blame whoever, whatever, caused the original wounds and look for retribution. That is a valuable initial step and a necessary part of the process for we do need to recognize what happened to us. We need to validate the traumatizing experience and understand that it wasn't our fault. However, focusing on the experience or on punishing the perpetrators, it's not enough to bring deep healing because those actions will not change the embodied systems that form trauma worlds. It's akin to being hit by a drunk driver and breaking a leg. Focusing on the accident and making sure the driver is in jail will not heal our leg. Whew, this one, this one's powerful. I like how she talks about It's important to get mad. It's important to spend that time raging and getting angry and really starting to recognize who hurt us, the things that we didn't get when we were growing up, the ways that we were victimized and abused, neglected. All of that is really important. And kind of like psychologically giving that back to the person that neglected or abused you really having that healthy anger with your parents as an adult when you're on your healing journey. But as I learned becoming stuck in that angry, blaming place it didn't help me. Now I know some of you come from homes where you endured some horrific abuse. I'm talking about sexual violation, unimaginable physical abuse. Things that mean that you cannot have a relationship with your caregivers and feel safe whatsoever. We've kind of misconstrued the, the word safe now in this day and age. We've conflated now feeling unsafe to basically someone just disagreeing with us or not validating our exact worldview. That's not feeling unsafe. <laughs> when you were actually physically or sexually violated, that is true unsafety. And we can't conflate those two. Sure, it doesn't feel good when someone doesn't validate us or believe what we're believing or seeing what we're seeing. That's fine, but we can't force other people to do that and calling out that you're unsafe because of that. It's just more victim-minded, very, very fragile emotionally immature behavior that we have to overcome. But if you're anything like me, my parents never laid a hand on me growing up. I had all my basic needs met. The primary issue was that my parents were soaking and drowning in toxic shame on my mom's side and emotional constipation to the nth degree. And on my dad's side, some of the most horrific physical violence and addiction issues that you can possibly imagine what my dad endured. On the outside, our family was, you know, a-okay. Two school teachers living in Wyoming, two kids. We had a nice cute little house and neighborhood friends went to school. My parents always picked us up on time, but behind closed doors, there were rages and triggered emotions and not a lot of emotional support to such an extreme degree that it was almost confusing to be in that environment because I knew that my parents were loved me they were taking care of me the best way they knew how but why did I still feel so empty so unloved so unseen so neglected and now I understand And I spent a long time being really angry when I realized the depth of the emotional neglect and the really, really dysregulated, scary environment of anger and rage and just the dynamics of the household because of repressed generational trauma. I needed some time to be angry, but if I stayed in that spot, I wouldn't be where I am now. I still have moments of anger and triggering and frustration, but researching all of this, especially generational aspect of trauma has helped me put things in perspective, zoom out to a hundred thousand feet and really understand that my parents went through unimaginable things. Their parents went through unimaginable things. When I tell you on my dad's side, the poverty, the, Depth of abuse and neglect is just beyond imagining, and it's not my place to share many details about my dad's past because that's his story. But knowing what happened in the dynamics of my parents and their parents and their parents, it really helped me put things into perspective and realize there's nothing wrong with me. This is generational. It's generational trauma, and. I want to be the cycle breaker and I want to try to have the best relationship that I can with my parents, learning to have an adult relationship with these two people that brought me into the world that love me very much and try to move forward the best way I can. I can't change them. I can't force them to do the same work that I'm doing. And that's something that we also have to release. So I love that she talks about the importance of being in our anger because many of us as children, we weren't allowed to have our anger. So you need to have that time. I talked on previous episodes about the stages of grief and Google the different stages of grief if you haven't listened to those episodes or go back and check them out. But there is a process of grieving and you have to grieve what you lost, grieve what could have been. And anger is part of that process. But it's not to finish, so you have to keep moving through. But don't force yourself to be done with the anger before you need to. It's also going to come in fits and starts and waves. You'll probably feel like everything's fine and then something will happen and you go right back into the rage and despair again. Let it run its course. But also keep the higher seat of your awareness when you can and say, this will pass. I'm going to let my body feel this, but I know that eventually I will have to move forward so let's keep reading healing trauma requires the courage to recognize that ultimately our lives are compromised not by the original traumatizing experiences themselves but by the trauma worlds created by our own minds and bodies in responses to those experiences and we need to recognize this reality without blaming and judging ourselves we need to understand that creating a trauma world is what human beings do to survive At the same time, we must take responsibility for moving beyond our trauma worlds. Marion Woodman wrote about this point. And before we read this quote by Marion Woodman, analysis is what Jungian analysts and Jungian analysts are therapists that operate through the lens of Jungian depth psychology. They call analysis therapy. So just so you know, this is the quote that she shares by Marion Woodman. In analysis, this process towards self-responsibility is the key factor if any growth or transformation is to take place, until we recognize and accept that change is up to us. We're stuck in infantile judge and blame games. Granted, a situation out there, in quotes, may be far from perfect from an objective point of view, but the fact remains that that the only person we can take responsibility for is ourself. So CF goes on to say, what does it mean to take responsibility for ourselves and our own healing? What must we do if we are able to move beyond our trauma worlds? Developing a cognitive awareness of the original traumatizing experiences and of the systems created in their wake is a good start, but it's not enough. Woodman writes the following, quote, We believe that once we have the words to describe a phenomenon, we understand it. But although words are necessary, they're insufficient. Meaningful discovery becomes possible only when knowledge is enlivened by the experience that's lived through the body. If an experience is not coming from the body, then it's not known. This is really powerful, and I think it speaks to why I find Just intuitively, my heckles going up when someone says, oh, I'm diagnosed with BPD or "Oh, I'm diagnosed with autism, bipolar, fill in the blank, ADHD, OCD. Now I've got it. I've got the language that explains what's wrong with me. And now I can take XYZ medication, watch these videos, do these skills, and all will be well. And she acknowledges, look, this is a good start, acknowledging that you have these symptoms, right? If some of these diagnostic labels give you language for some of the things that you've been experiencing, that's great. She says, developing a cognitive awareness of the original traumatizing experiences and the different symptoms that arise, it's good, but it's not enough because we need to understand that these things are living in our body. We have to make this recovery process and embodied experience acknowledge our feelings sit with them create move and that might seem a little bit scary for those of us who like to live up in our minds all the time raising my hand right now because it's totally me she writes thus to create lasting change we must enter our emotional minds and bodies and develop an embodied consciousness of what we carry from the inside That means opening to the original traumatizing pain and fear, learning how to tolerate its presence in both mind and body, and integrating it into our sense of who we are. It's only when we find ways of relating to the buried pain and fear that our lives are no longer organized around the imperative to avoid anything that might trigger these emotions. So much in this one paragraph. Once we really dare to enter not just the mind, but the emotional body of what we're carrying inside of these trauma worlds. Learning to really go back and face some of these original woundings and really start saying that this is a part of who I am, but it's in the past and I will become resilient in the face of it and journaling it out, screaming it out, letting yourself cry, doing the reading, understanding things, becoming more aware. It's only then that we can begin to start feeling like our life is no longer just completely trying to like jump from trigger to trigger feeling like we're constantly just reacting to life. We can finally just be. Equally crucial is that we work with the fear, disconnection, and shame that form trauma worlds. First, we must engage with these systems and become conscious of how we feel in both mind and body when they're active. Then we have to learn to calm our sensitized fear system, reconnect to the exiled parts of ourselves, and challenge our shame. And finally... We need to develop new and healthier ways to protect ourselves. This is daunting, slow, and arduous work. Trauma worlds are created to survive overwhelming fear and pain. When trying to transform them, we are besieged by the conviction that we will be annihilated. Thus, we need to have patience, perseverance, determination, and courage. It's also imperative that we have support and guidance from those who have been through this process themselves. She's saying it all right here. Recognize this is going to be a slow process. And I'm not saying you're going to suffer through this healing process for your whole life. It actually, there are beautiful moments of it. That's another thing. I feel like too much in recovery, we think this is going to be work. This is all going to suck. There are moments when I've broken down and cried and finally allowed myself to feel things for the first time that have opened my mind to spirituality, to grace, to forgiveness for people that I perceive to have hurt me. There's beauty in this healing work if you allow yourself to really settle into it and accept that it's just going to be a process with no particular end in sight. And you have to also expect, she said this in pretty academic, psychoanalytical terms, but she basically said, we need to kind of expect that we're going to be besieged by the conviction that we'll be annihilated. What does she mean by that? Well, remember how we talked about the biology and the adaptive nature of some of these things? From a very young age, when we felt like we were not seen, loved, nurtured by our caregivers, we genuinely, in our biological animal bodies, felt that there was a threat of annihilation. Meaning, there is a threat to our actual life, our ability to exist. We needed to get our parents' attention and validation for literal survival. That's why when you know, parents of kids who are slapped with BPD labels, never mind the fact that we should not be giving anyone personality disorder diagnoses, but particularly not children, when parents go in and they're told by mental health professionals... This is attention-seeking behavior, as if seeking attention and nurturing is bad. How fucking re-traumatizing is that message? We all need attention and validation and love to fucking survive. And you needed that too, and you deserved that too. So when you're entering this healing process, prepare for these feelings, that are going to overwhelm you, that almost try to trick you into believing that you're going to fucking die, that this is the worst thing ever, because this is just your childhood animal body coming out and you have to find ways to self-soothe. And she talks about the imperative of having support and guidance from those who've been through this process before. Some of you that are listening don't have people in your life that are even wanting to look at any of this stuff. Some people really struggle with disconnection. It is so hard. I hear all the time from people that are struggling with connection and friendships right now because of the world that we've lived in, because of the pandemic that we just went through, the chronically online nature of the younger generations and kind of like feeling like they're even forgetting how to socially interact. And I know how hard it is. So I'm hoping that this podcast can be a little bit of that support and guidance from somebody who's been through this process before because I've been through it, I'm going through it. And I would say I've been doing really, really hard internal work hard. I don't like that. See, I'm going straight back to like my, I'm working hard. I've been focusing on my recovery path intently for about three years now. And when I say intently, I mean really focusing on me, what I can do, going through the grieving process. And the first part of it was pretty cerebral. Only for like the last six to eight months have I really started like thinking, oh, maybe I should like be more embodied about this. Maybe I need to be thinking about my physical body and how this all plays in and start taking care of myself too, my body. So think about the time. It's like three years really hardcore with all of it, but only the last six months of really taking my body into account. And I'm here to tell you, even after just six months of really bringing it all together, I'm feeling better. I'm a deep feeling, big feeling person. I'm I'm always going to have ups and downs. I struggle with my hormones. I'm just going to be an emotional, creative mess, a beautiful, emotional, creative mess. That's just who I am. But I feel like I'm able to surf the waves of my emotions better, feel them, respond rather than react to things, and also be a better listener and a better partner, someone who people feel like they can actually rely on emotionally. These are huge steps. My gut health is a lot better. My because I struggled a lot with gastrointestinal stuff. I think because of all of the emotional things that were going on, I'm working on my chronic tension and pain and no more chronic infections. So huge, huge progress in a relatively not that long of a time. So I hope I can be just part of that support structure for you to cheer you on and say that you can do this. So she goes on to write, to heal trauma, we need not only an embodied consciousness of what we carry from the past, but we also need new experiences. Real change happens in the present moment through lived experiences. Woodman, in a heartfelt collaboration with Mary Hamlin, who is a dancer, a teacher, and educator, and writer, and Anne Skinner, who is a voice and mask teacher and coach, created the Body-Soul Rhythm Intensives which were residential workshops that provided women with opportunities for powerful new experiences that bring healing. So she goes on a bit more to talk about these body soul rhythms um, experiences. And she says that she's going to share some information of women that went through these programs because she says that quote, These intensives are a vital element in Marion Woodman's contribution to healing trauma, and because they illustrate crucial ingredients necessary for healing, this article would be incomplete without some discussion of them. The original intensives, which took place over six days and were structured as an initiation, were framed by a myth, a fairy tale, or by one of Jung's texts. During the first days, the facilitators created a safe container and set the scene. The middle days were structured to help us descend beneath the surface of our consciousness, reconnect to what had been buried, and explore new ways of being. The last days were devoted to helping us bring our discoveries to the surface and begin the painstaking process of integrating them into daily life. The mornings were spent with words. We worked with containing myth, fairy tale, or text, and with participants' dreams. The afternoons were spent working with movement, voice, and art. We also made plaster of Paris masks on our own faces and were guided through a series of exercises in which we embodied our mask's energy. Sometimes it was an energy that we were already living, but which was so ingrained that we had no consciousness of it. Other times it was an energy that had been exiled to protect ourselves from traumatizing attacks. Moving back and forth between mind and body contributed to healing trauma in two ways— First, the bodywork encouraged us to venture beyond the relatively safe and controlled world of the mind and into more charged worlds of embodied experience, feelings, and implicit memories. Yet, to use embodied experience as a stepping stone toward change, we needed to reflect on the experiences and bring them into consciousness. And for most of us, that meant translating lived experience into words. Second, the actual process of alternating between mind and body quietly began to bridge the disconnection that is defining feature of trauma worlds. What I love about what she shared here, it's just really hitting for me because it touches on a lot of things we've talked about on this podcast, which is no surprise because a lot of my wisdom that I share is derived from these Jungian teachers But what she's talking about is the structure of these retreats, how the beginning of them were encouraging participants to go into the metaphorical underworld, right? Because that's the myth, the hero's journey. You start off on a journey, you have to go into the underworld, and then you're coming back with wisdom to bring back as your truer and higher self. And also this moving back and forth between talking about your experiences, diving into myth and mysticism, and then moving that out in your body and constantly going back and forth between the two, I can understand why that would help participants start having more of a cohesion and flow between these two things. And interestingly, I'm right now taking a course from dreamtending.com, which is facilitated by Dr. Steven Eisenstadt, who is a previous Back From the Borderline guest, also the founder of the Pacifica Graduate Institute, which was the sponsor of this plenary speech that we're reading now. I am currently taking their dreamtending course. The There's two different certifications that you can get. It's an eight-month-long course and experience. I did the first Session last month, which was over a, a weekend. and our next one is coming up in February. And part of this next session was us making masks. And I know that Dr. Eisenstadt is a huge fan of Marion Woodman's work, as is one of the mentors on this course who is actually the one who's going to guide us through this mask exercise. So all of this is is tying together. If these kind of certifications sound like something you might be interested in, you can go to dreamtending.com and check them out. So let's keep reading more about what went down at these body soul rhythms intensives. So Daniela writes, as we worked with our bodies, we were witnessed in a compassionate and non judgmental way by both the leaders as well as by a partner. I know now that there are several reasons why being witnessed is vital to healing. First, if we've grown up in the shadow of the negative or death mother, to be seen without judgment is a new experience that can bring healing in and of itself. Second, to heal shame, We need to expose that shame to another person and be received with compassion. We also need to learn through a lived experience that we're worthy of being in relationship. We can't heal shame alone. Third, being seen in a non-judgmental and supportive way counteracts the sense of isolation that's inherent to trauma. There was just as much growth in witnessing others as there was in being witnessed, Most of us had not learned to be present with others in a truly supportive way because it wasn't modeled for us in our families. In the intensives, we started to learn. Put differently, in taking on the witnessing role, we had an opportunity to develop genuine empathy, not the kind of empathy that comes from the head or the kind that's used to control people, which we discussed in the episode prior to this, by the way, but the kind that allows us to be present to others in a meaningful way. This is also the kind of empathy that allows us to be present to ourselves in a compassionate way. And self-compassion is crucial to counteracting the shame that runs a riot in trauma worlds. Also, humans are particularly good at learning from others. So if we're too terrified to approach our original pain or challenge our trauma worlds, witnessing others do so showed us it could be done this is really powerful because we talked about the concept of being like an emotional vampire when we're stuck in this mode of just trauma dumping on others and kind of just expecting others to save us or always be there for us but our relationships are not exactly the most reciprocal One thing that we really miss out on is how healing it is to actually be there and witness for other people. That's healing in itself, not just feeling like we constantly have to have others see and witness us and that it always needs to be about us. Moving in connection with other people, healing together is incredibly powerful. It's an example of my friendship with melanie who's been on the podcast and for my premium subscribers we recently did two episodes the two of us ever since i interviewed her when i first started my podcast we have pretty much talked every single day on voice notes since with podcasts like the voice notes on the daily and she's been there for me i've been there for her and we've watched each other grow for the last two years in our friendship and having that reciprocal sisterhood with her, someone who really understands and is there for me, but I offer her the exact same thing. I can really understand what Danielle is talking about when it comes to the sisterhood that would come from these kinds of workshops where you are present for others, they're present for you. You're witnessing, feeling, crying, dancing, singing, reading myths. Feeling together, reciprocally, it's very healing. So she goes on to write We not only learned from one another in the group, but we also learned from the workshop leaders. Woodman shared stories from her life in a way that was profoundly healing. Today's therapists are trained not to reveal their personal history, but Woodman lived her own truth. Her sharing gave us an example of somebody speaking one's personal reality. In a way that was authentically connected to a feeling but which was also contained and responsible most people living in a trauma world have no idea how to do that woodman's sharing also inspired hope growing up in a trauma world our lives become organized around fear disconnection and shame at some barely conscious level we sense that we're wounded and we're desperate to find new ways of being However, the trauma world is all we know, and we cannot truly imagine anything else. Thus, to have any chance of changing, we need a model of somebody who has lived through trauma and who has found a different way to be. Marion Woodman, Mary Hamilton, and Ann Skinner provided this model implicitly through their humanity, and Woodman also helped us forge an implicit sense of what that might mean by sharing parts of her story with us. I found myself getting a little choked up as I was reading this because Marion Woodman is a hero of mine. I have a picture of her on the desk behind me where I record my podcast because she inspires me so much. And I try my best to share stories from my life in a way that can help heal others, sharing my truth but in a way that feels contained and responsible. And it's a hard balance to strike. And I truly feel like I found my purpose in that. It's the first time I've ever done anything where I feel truly driven by this intrinsic need to help and serve. And so it feels like a full circle moment for me to be sitting here, sharing her work, sharing about the Pacifica Graduate Institute, this work, beautiful work by Daniela, and also what Dr. Eisenstadt is doing with the Pacifica Graduate Institute and his work, all of these people are breathing life back into Marion's legacy. And if I can play any small part in that, it brings me so much happiness inside to bring her work and her name and what she's accomplished to my listeners. Daniela goes on to write in Rilke, and Rilke is a philosopher, one of my favorites, Sonnets to Orpheus, a poem that Woodman loves. There is a line about how the unicorn is fed not with corn, but with the possibility of being. Through Marian Woodman's writing and the body-soul rhythm program, many who carry trauma have been fed with the possibility of being. So Daniela finishes off with this last paragraph that's titled what does it mean to be healed (laughs) the question of the ages right she writes when we embark on trying to heal our trauma many of us are naively imagining that we will arrive at a place where we are free from the suffering that arises from our wounds and where trauma will no longer affect our lives that is not what happens we cannot change our past our wounds will remain part of us However, what can be changed is how we relate to our wounds, as well as to ourselves and to others. To achieve these crucial changes, we must go inside both body and mind to find new and healthier ways of being with the pain and fear embedded in those wounds. And just as importantly, we must transform the trauma world that forms around them. It's a challenging process. It takes time. Many people, and indeed most public health services, look for an easier and faster route. But there is no easy and fast route. To address trauma in a meaningful way, we need to commit ourselves to this challenge. We also need to be accompanied by those who know trauma through what they themselves have lived in body, psyche, and soul. Marion Woodman is one such person. So that is it for our exploration of this beautiful plenary speech by Daniela Sieff all about trauma worlds. I hope that by now you feel more conscious of some things that you might need to start taking a look at in your own life. I encourage you to really start reflecting on the nature of that inner narrator in your mind and what are the kinds of things that you say to yourself, what are the kind of stories you say to yourself and really start trusting yourself. The most empowering thing I did on my journey was let myself kind of follow the breadcrumbs, the string through the labyrinth of my own healing. You have to trust that. Once I started doing that, synchronicity started happening the right books fell into my lap at the right time not literally but i would hear about it and then i'd look it up and get the book then i'd read that book and another one would come and or i'd hear a podcast episode and something that's really helped me is when i would really resonate with the work of someone like marian woodman i type her name into youtube type her name into apple podcasts and sure enough tons of her lectures are available you can go listen to Marion woodman and i encourage you to do it because she's an incredible storyteller she's so humble she's so funny she doesn't take herself too seriously at all which is something that can happen in the world of psychoanalysis and depth psychology but there's still gems to be found in the people that take themselves very seriously too On Audible. So if you type Marion Woodman into Audible, some of the most beautiful lectures, she even has one of these Audible lectures that has tons of really beautiful guided visualizations that I always find myself going back to. I believe that one is Sitting at the Well or Holding the Tension of the Opposites. Both of those are 10 on 10 recommendations from me. Another thing you could consider looking into if you love Marion Woodman is. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, she wrote the book that some people may have heard of called Women Who Run With Wolves, but she also has some absolutely beautiful stuff available on Audible that is incredibly healing. All this stuff is very accessible and affordable, and this is how I've moved through my healing journey. So I hope that what I've shared, my resources that have helped me, my very personal stories from my own life, And this beautiful work facilitated by these incredible women who have brought their work all together, the Pacifica Graduate Institute, all of these incredible things coming together to make this wisdom available for you, my listener. And now it's up to you what you're going to do with it. It's up to you to decide if you want to continue living in your trauma world. How is that working out? For you so far and what are you going to do to change it and remember this doesn't have to be hard horrible work yes there's going to be tough parts of it but don't forget there is also beauty and breaking open and a lot of people talk about becoming the person that you're meant to be healing is actually more about unbecoming it's about things falling away and then you remembering who you truly were to begin with you're shedding all of this programming you're shedding all of the shame you're giving it back to the people that it belongs to and as i say on the introduction of the podcast you'll be standing in the ashes of the person you used to be in this phoenix metaphor of rising from the ashes as something new metamorphosized, initiated into a new part of your journey. And that's what I wish for you. And it is absolutely possible. No one is beyond healing and hope. Absolutely no one. No matter how deeply you think that you're broken or flawed. That's just the trauma world speaking. All right, my beautiful listener, that is it for our exploration of trauma worlds. I love doing these deep dive series for you. And I've learned a lot along the way as well. I wanna give a huge shout out to Daniela FCF. Again, I'm really hoping I'm pronouncing her name properly as well as to the Pacifica Graduate Institute and the Marion Woodman Foundation, who this plenary lecture and all the information that we used was provided by. And I will include a link in the episode description to the full article that you can access online and reference. If you enjoyed this series, you can really help me out by sharing it with somebody that you love. Or if you're in therapy, you can share it with your therapist. As I previously mentioned, there are other ways to support my work. You can sign up for a Patreon subscription, which will allow you access to hundreds of hours of bonus content, full ad-free episodes always and access to our discord community so that you can meet other people that are going through this recovery journey. So if all of that sounds interesting and you want to check it out, you can go ahead and visit patreon.com slash back from the borderline. I have two different tiers. The higher tier also includes access to my private voice notes, which I send once a week and are more informal. I usually take them while I'm on my walk. And I'm just sharing more private personal insights about my recovery journey with my premium subscribers. So go ahead and check out those tiers on Patreon. There are previews of some of the voice notes that you can check out. And I believe Patreon now even allows for people to sign up for free. And what that does. I think it just allows you to get notifications every time I post something and you can listen to the previews. So at the very least, go to patreon.com slash back from the borderline and sign up for free. And then you can decide if you want to sign up later. No worries. Another way that you can connect with me and follow my work is following me on Instagram at back from the borderline. I share memes almost every day, lots of cool stuff going on in the discussion and the comments there too. And the OG way to support my podcast is leave me a review or rate the podcast, depending on which platform you're using. That really helps people find my work. Any way that you can support and share and advocate and sign up, it's all good. But if you want to just keep listening for free, that's okay too. You are welcome here in this community. So that's all I've got for you today, my beautiful listener. I hope you gained some wisdom and insight from what I've shared. I hope you can take this and meaningfully incorporate it into your real life because that's really how change happens. And I'll leave you with this. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos, and disorder lies your greatest strength, If only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Mm. code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon book list recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.